The first-century scribes and Pharisees were respected by their peers as devoted and spiritual. The prime example of what religion should be. Then why did Jesus say, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. Our teacher, Dave Wordson, uses a fictitious first-century Pharisee named Samuel, not to be confused with the Old Testament prophet, to help us feel the power of Jesus' words in their original context. In fact, as we gather at Samuel's funeral, just about everybody in the community is there. This guy is one of those big ones. The average funeral runs about 125 to 150. The church is jammed for this funeral. I mean, everybody in the bank is there. Everybody in the major businesses are there. And everybody is giving their praises to Samuel. I mean, after all, you've got to praise a man that gave 20% of his income to the Lord's work. Now, you hear some people that give 10%, but this fellow gave over 20% of his income. In fact, they could look around their church facility and know that much of what they had in their building and through the years, I mean, a fellow that's 86 years old has a lot of years to give, and Samuel gave. I mean, he was the stalwart on the leadership committees for the church. And everybody knew that he controlled that religious group. You know what else Samuel did that everyone knew about? Samuel twice a week fasted. The reason everyone knew when he was fasting is that he would put some dirt on his head and he would put on sackcloth and Samuel would fast twice a week. Now you've got to give, I mean, somebody that, that, that is that religious. I mean, most of us don't have the discipline to fast for one day. Once every six years or so. I mean, this fellow did it every single week. So he was a giver. He was a faster. In fact, this fellow knew the Bible cold. In fact, when the preacher was speaking at a religious gathering, Samuel could often raise his hand and say, Preacher, that was the wrong reference. It was found over here. In fact, this fellow knew the Bible so well that he didn't need to bring his Bible to the church gathering, to the gathering of God's people. He had it all memorized. Can you imagine that? In other words, when you said, turn in the Bible to Psalm 27, he didn't have to turn. He could just quote it. Turn to Isaiah 46. He'd quote it again. Genesis chapter 1 through 12, he had it down. I mean, you talk about a religious man. Samuel was a religious man. And everybody in town knew it. And everybody in town looked up to Samuel. And so at his funeral, everybody was thinking, here is the example of godliness. If only all of our sons, if only our sons would grow up and follow the example of a patriarch like Samuel. Only we can change the scene a little bit because we can go to the heavenly court. And if Samuel comes into the heavenly courtroom and he comes before the Lord of heaven and earth, Samuel is expecting to receive the same kind of acclaim. I mean, every time he gathered together with God's people, he got patted on the back. What a marvelous leader you are. What a tremendous elder. You're the foundation of all the religious ethical teaching of our community. He expected the angels to meet him and to greet him. And he came before God. 
And the Lord of heaven and earth looked at Samuel and said, Depart from me. I never even knew you. I never had a relationship with you. And Samuel said, But what about all the money that I gave? What about all the attendance at your, at your worship services? I mean, every week I did it. What about all that food I gave up for you? The Lord God of the universe told his angels to take Samuel and to cast him into outer darkness. Now that is an awesome, awesome turnabout. Because here was a man who had all the credentials that we, from a human standpoint, would say would get him into the kingdom of God, and yet Samuel missed it. And you say, well, Dave, if Samuel missed it, how could I ever have a chance? Well, the incredible thing about it is that as Samuel was gathered together around the throne of God and before the judgment of God, a whore came in. I mean, a girl that, that, he, had, that he had spoken against many times in the city council. I mean, this girl would be on the streets on a Friday night and a Saturday night for year after year after year in their city, and Samuel had, had mounted the drive to get that kind of scum away from their city. And yet the Lord God of heaven and earth welcomed this girl as his daughter. A tax collector came in. Now a tax collector is on the same level as a whore. Because he was, he was a Jewish man that had sold out to the, to the Romans who had taken over the land and was collecting money for taxes. And it's hard enough to be paying taxes to your own people when you're ruled like we are in the United States by a government that we elect. It's still hard to pay taxes. But this tax collector didn't collect taxes for a duly elected government. He collected taxes for a, an army that had invaded his land and destroyed many of the people and brutally butchered the land. And he had given in to this, this Roman rule. And he collected money from his own people. And he not only collected what the Romans told him to collect, but he collected a whole lot more money. He lived in a beautiful house. He had beautiful clothes. He had many, many people that he had bought off because he was collecting all kinds of money under the table. And Samuel looked at this tax collector and, and said, there's no way. I mean, I'm going to spend eternity with that kind of a man? I mean, what kind of company? I mean, it's, it's hard enough to go to hell. But to be in the company with tax collectors, but then an amazing thing happened. The tax collector did not face those words, depart from me, depart from me, I never knew you. Instead, the king of kings, the lord of lords, put his arms around this tax collector and called him his brother, called him his son, welcomed him home to the family. What we need to understand, brothers and sisters, if we're ever going to understand what the New Testament is all about, is that Jesus is the Lord. And if you're going to understand what the most important realities that you can understand in this life are all about, you've got to come to grips with the question, and how in the world does God welcome whores, tax collectors, criminals, the thief on the cross, and how does he turn away the Samuels of the world? Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 because the key to the next part of the sermon that we want to begin this week is expressed in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 sets the theme 
for the next section of this sermon, which will go until verse 47 at the end of chapter 5. For I tell you, Jesus speaking, I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, the Samuels of the world, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now those are tough words. If you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you've got to have a deeper, you have to have a greater, you have to have a more meaningful righteousness than just coming to church, just giving your money, just being a good citizen in your community. And that's why Jesus was rejected by the Samuels of his world while the sinners welcomed him gladly. Now what Jesus does is he tells us in verses 17 through 20 about his relationship to all this part of the Holy Word of God, a part which honestly many of us don't get to know very well. And I trust as a result of what we learn that we'll get a hunger, that we'll get a passion to understand the Old Testament because Jesus is going to talk to us about his relationship to the Old Testament. He begins like this in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish or to nullify or to set aside the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, and here's our key verse, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus introduces a very difficult subject. What is his relationship to the law and to the prophets? As we study further in the life of Christ, we're going to find out that there's going to become a tremendous conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. Because Jesus' disciples will go out into a grain field and they'll pick corn and wheat and crunch it in their hands and eat it on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees will say, your, your disciples are breaking the law. How could Jesus ever say that he had not come to nullify the law? Jesus will also talk about the Pharisees and all their washing, how they wash their hands and how they're so careful about their food. And Jesus, during the course of his earthly ministry, will declare all foods clean. There's no reason in the world for you as a born-again believer to be careful about kosher food. Read Acts chapter 10. You don't have to get all caught up in what food that you eat. You can receive it as a good gift from the Lord. And Acts chapter 10 talks about God saying, don't you declare unclean what I call unclean. In the Old Testament law, the Gentiles were excluded from intimate relationship with God. They always were on the outside, and yet Jesus is going to tear down that division. What I'm trying to do is to just jog your memory to remind you of how again and again Jesus appeared to be setting aside the law. He appeared to be setting aside the food laws. Eventually, he set aside the temple. He set aside the sacrifices. How in the world could Jesus ever say, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it? 
Well, there's many answers to that question. Some people answer the question, and what they say is that what Jesus did is he brought out its true interpretation of the law. Another group will say what Jesus did was he nullified the ceremonial part of the law, all the temple sacrifices, the holidays of the Old Testament, the ceremonial part, and he nullified the civil part, which was all the rule that applied to Israel as a theocracy under God, but he didn't nullify the moral part. The moral part continues. But Jesus in these verses doesn't talk about just the moral part of the law lasting until the end of the age. He talks about the entire law, the entire prophets. Even within this context, as we read further today, Jesus is going to say, it was said to you of old by God. And the phrase that he uses goes like that. It's not, you haven't been taught by the Pharisees. That's another way that some people deal with this passage, that Jesus is bringing out what the Pharisees taught about the law versus what God taught about the law. And yet the phrase that Jesus uses, you have been taught that God said in the past so-and-so, but I say unto you. And we've got this incredible contrast of a man who puts himself equal with God that revealed himself on Mount Sinai and says, God said to you in the past, I say to you now. It's an unbelievable indirect statement of the, of the deity of Christ. Well, how do we understand Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament. I want you to notice something, first of all, in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Matthew adds, or the prophets. And that's a very important addition. Because in the Old Testament, the prophetic message builds off the Old Testament law. The prophets talk about a relationship with God based upon Mount Sinai. For example, Isaiah will talk about the covenant relationship of God created by, by Moses at Mount Sinai. Hosea, the first marriage in Hosea that we spent a lot of years studying together when I was writing my dissertation on that, talks about a first marriage which is based on the covenant law, the covenant obligations of Mount Sinai. And the prophets talk about that relationship going like this. If you obey, then all of these blessings will follow. If you disobey, then all of these curses will follow. Deuteronomy 28. We'll talk about these are the blessings, these are the cursings. Now, every one of you understand that kind of relationship. Your mom and dad have been teaching you that kind of relationship from the time you were little kids. If you're a good boy today, I promise we'll stop at Brahms and we'll give you an ice cream cone. And if you're good, you stop and you get to lick a nice treat, right? If you get good grades in school, I'll give you $5 for every A. Very powerful motivation. You all understand it. And God understood that we would understand it. So at Mount Sinai, he instituted that kind of a bilateral arrangement. Here are my responsibilities to you. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will protect you. I will give to you materially. I will give you health. I will give you the land. I will give you cities. I will give you clothes. I will take care of you as your guardian, as your king. All you need to do is to obey me. And the people said, oh, we're going to do it. And all the blessings will come upon us. Well, then the history begins to unfold. And instead of the children of Israel obeying God, 
According to that bilateral agreement, what did they do? Well, you don't have to go to Sunday school very long before you realize that God keeps his promises, that God is the kind of a person that he needs to be, but what's the matter with us human beings? The children of Israel are a microcosm of what all the human race are like. We are gripers, we are disobedient, we are headstrong, we are like mules that you can't get to do what you want them to do. And so the book of Hosea talks about Ephraim being like a wild donkey that you can't get it to do anything that you want him to do. And God continually is pulling on this, on this stubborn mule and can't get him to do what he needs him to do. So the Old Testament prophets talk about the end of the Mosaic Agreement, the end of the Sinai Covenant, that God's not going to deal with his people that way. And the terrible judgment of God, the curses of Deuteronomy come down upon the people. Now that's where a lot of Old Testament scholars think that the Old Testament ended. In fact, in a lot of ways, the Pharisees thought that's where it ended. In fact, the Pharisees felt that the children of Israel in the past blew it, but we're not going to blow it. I mean, we know that our fathers in the wilderness griped and rebelled against God, but not us. We're the holy people. We'll never give in to idolatry again. We know that our people in the past used to worship Baal and Astart. We know that they got involved in immorality, but we'll never do it. In fact, just take immorality. We'll never get involved in immorality like the Old Testament people did because we're going to keep those girls a million miles away from us and we're going to put all kinds of clothes on them. We're going to make sure their dresses not only go to their knee, they're going to go all the way down to their ankles. And we're not even going to see them because we're going to lock them up in their, in their houses with their fathers. And therefore, we won't have any trouble with them because we'll never teach them. We'll never see them. Therefore, we'll never be able to be tempted. That was the Pharisee. You see, they said our people in the past blew the Sinai agreement. We're not going to blow it. And they felt they were not. They felt that they were keeping Mount Sinai. In fact, they created a whole bunch more rules to put around the hundreds of rules that God already gave to make sure. You see, their idea was, if God has his rules here in the center, what we'll do is we'll make a whole bunch of other rules out here, and that way, by keeping these rules out here, we'll be sure we protect the center. And that's what Jesus is dealing with. The Pharisees interpreted the Mosaic law as a promise of eternal life. And you know what? They were right up to a point. You see, if an Old Testament man or woman completely obeyed the law, if an Old Testament man or woman understood it and then lived it out, like thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, and on and on through the Ten Commandments and on through the law, the Old Testament did promise that if you lived by the law, then you would live eternally by the law. You would be a righteous person that would be welcomed into the light that would never end. So the Pharisees were right. If you keep the law, if you keep the standard, you'll be right with God. But they made a fatal error. You see, it's real important if you're shooting at a standard, if you set a series of rules and regulations, it's very important that you set those rules and regulations according to the one who's the authority behind those standards. And that's where the Pharisees blew it. 
In fact, they blew it right at the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments at the very end said something like this, Thou shalt not covet. Now, how many of you have ever coveted externally? How many of you have ever stolen externally? In other words, how many of you have ever taken something? You've taken your hand, you've reached in your mom's purse, and you've taken something that you haven't, that didn't belong to you. Now, you can go right through the Ten Commandments like that. You murder externally, right? You commit adultery. The Pharisees, they said, we never committed adultery. They'd never been in bed with a woman that wasn't their wife. They never physically had intercourse with a woman that didn't belong to them. They were not adulterers. But they missed the last part, the Tenth Commandment, which was the heartbeat of the whole thing because it took it to the level that God meant for it to be taken to, which was, thou shalt not desire what God doesn't desire for you. And the whole law needed to be internalized, which is one of Jesus' major points. And the Pharisees externalized it, made it a legal standard that just pertained to what you were on the outside. And legalists always think that you can beat the wicked, corrupt nature inside of us by setting up a hedge and you can protect people from doing evil if you only get them to conform externally. In fact, if you get a group of young people to look like West Point cadets, if you go to West Point, you won't see any long hair. If you go to the Air Force Academy, there will be no long hair. You know what? There will be no grubby clothes. I mean, there will be ship-shaped uniforms. Their boots are just shiny. You can see your face in them. If you go to Mitchie Stadium on a fall day at West Point and see the whole thousands of cadets marching across the beautiful fields there in the middle of West Point, you'll say, there it is, the prime of America. Talk to the chaplains at West Point. You see, we all have it in our head. They look good. They must be good. Let the chaplains tell you about the immorality. It's not any different than any other university. Let them tell you about the cheating. You see, you can't clean up the outside and conquer the inside. But the Pharisees, like all legalists and a very strong part of us, is like that. We think if the outside is right, then the inside must be right. And Jesus is saying, oh no. And the prophets were saying, oh no. The prophets came to the children of Israel and they pronounced judgment based upon Mount Sinai. They called for the children of Israel to come to the end of themselves and to admit that God had no legal obligation to them any longer under Mount Sinai. God was no longer obligated to his people based upon Mount Sinai because his people had totally disobeyed the Sinaitic covenant. And God could have gone like that and he could have ended it. But he had made a promise, a different kind of a promise. Not a promise where he said, if you obey me, then I'll provide for you. But it was a promise he made to Father Abraham at the very beginning of the Israelite nation. And he said, Father Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And in your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And I'm going to make a gracious covenant with you. In fact, I'm going to put you to sleep so you won't be involved in actively making this covenant at all because you're going to be out like a light. And the Lord God of heaven and earth moved through the pieces of animals that had been slain. And God swore an oath that he would fulfill a unilateral promise to Abraham. 
The Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah didn't forget Genesis 12, 15, and 17. They didn't forget the promise to Jacob. They didn't forget the promise to Isaac. They didn't forget the promise to David. And those mighty Old Testament prophets cried out for their people to repent, to come to the end of themselves, and to fall in love with God from their hearts and allow God to come into their heart and not just take an old life and try to get it to conform to the newness, but to recognize that that old heart had to go. And it talked about new hearts that would be given. Jeremiah 31. Hosea chapter 14 talks about a new marriage, a new day when God will be united in a love relationship with his people. You say, Dave, what are you talking about? That's what Jesus meant when he said that in him he fulfilled the law, which talked about the curses due to human disobedience under Sinai and the prophets, which spoke about the accusations because of disobeying the Old Testament law, but the newness of a new covenant that would be a covenant of love. Do you understand that? That's a little bit hard if you're discouraged a little bit. A lot of seminary students don't understand that dynamic. But it's the heartbeat of the entire Old Testament message. Under Sinai, under legalism, under external rules and regulations that needed to be internalized, man could never make it. And so God put all men under sin so that in Christ they might receive a new covenant based upon grace. Now this legal thing is very powerful. I wrestle with it every single week with people. As I talk with people, many of you have been raised in a legal background. We have recreated Phariseeism many times in the evangelical community. We get all hung up on the way people cut their hair, the way that they dress. The, we get all hung up in external things, whether or not they drink alcohol, whether or not... They uh, do this or do that. Go to the movies, whatever it might be. And the problem is that if we tend to lock people in and we feel if we get them to conform to all these external standards, that everything will be all right. Well, in my years of ministry, what I'm finding out is that I work with a whole lot of people who did everything right on the outside. They gave their money. They came to church. They even preached against all of sin vehemently but they were permeated with sin. It was ripping their life apart. And many of them just recently have fallen and they brought disgrace upon the whole family of God. And oh, how we need to go back to Matthew 5 because Jesus is the one that sets us free. He's the one that tells us the truth. And he says that in him we fulfill the law. What Jesus is saying is that he fulfills the law in that he is the culmination of what the whole Old Testament message was leading to. And every part of that story in the Old Testament is important. And it will never be jettisoned. It's, it's important until Jesus comes back for us to train our children in the message of the Old Testament, combined with the message of the New Testament, so that they understand how God works with people. That's why Jesus says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That's very important. Till everything is fulfilled. Till every prophecy about Christ has been fulfilled. To every intent of the Father in revealing the Old Testament has been fulfilled. Now what does that mean for us as a church family? Well, what it means is that every one of us 
must recognize that this book has authority and relevance for us today. Now, as a Bible church, we really believe that. In fact, I shouldn't even have to mention it. But just recently, in the last couple weeks, I've been able to be in situations where I wasn't the one preaching, where somebody else was preaching, and I got to listen, whether it's on the radio or TV or something like that. And the Lord once again just confronted me with the subtlety of how many times supposed ministers of the gospel get up before an audience and in the name of God pronounce and proclaim and preach. But it isn't what the Bible says. It's not what the message of the Bible is. And it produces terrible confusion because some of God's people that are reading the Bible and they hear these words and they seem to contradict what the Bible's saying, they go, how do I handle this? This minister says this, this minister says this, this minister says this. And then I read the Bible and it understands and it creates this illusion that somehow the Bible is impossible to understand, which throws a kid into cynicism. The problem is that so few of us are trying to open up the Bible and thought by thought, listening carefully to God and his word to tell us the truth. You know what Jesus is saying, Dave? Until heaven and earth pass away, my law, my holy revelation, from Genesis through to Revelation, that's what we need to build our lives upon. And oh, how we need to pray that we'll be protected from wandering from that biblical faith. You would think it would be perfectly obvious that every time God's people get together, that they would pray to the true God, that they would fellowship together as a community of believers. You would expect that. And they would hear the word of God interpreted carefully and applied carefully. And we can praise God that that is happening in many places around the world. But sometimes in places where it should be happening, it's not. And I trust it's happening in your own life. I find in my own life I can be reading the word of God to get ready to preach to you. But I don't let the word of God preach to me. How about you? Sunday school teachers, you ever do that? And suddenly the Lord taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, this isn't just for the kids. Not just for your people in your church. It's for you. What about my relationship with you? Jesus is telling us that he did not set aside the Old Testament scripture. He said that not the least stroke of the pen, not the smallest little jot, which is just kind of a like the dot of an eye, you might say in English. From the dot of the eye to the cross of the T, God's word, it's, an, it's, a, it's a figure of speech to say that every single bit of God's scripture is going to be brought to completion. Verse 19, anyone who breaks the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now these commands is an interesting phrase because it not only looks back at the Old Testament and I just talked to you about the fact that Jesus himself puts aside some of the, some of the hygienic laws of the Old Testament. Some of the, the laws about holy days he sets aside. You say, Dave, how does that fit in with this verse? What he's saying is that he is the great interpreter of the Old Testament. 
And we must understand the author's intent. You see, as God works with people at different times, the essence of his relationship with man never changes. But some of the demands, some of the purposes that he has in working with us change. And so there's tremendous differences between a New Testament church believer and an Old Testament Israelite sacrificing a lamb in the temple. But in every sense, we, let's, let's just take sacrifice, for example. We are fulfilling the purpose of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament today. We have not set aside the sacrifices. We have not said, well, that isn't important. That isn't strategic. Because we worship the Lamb of God that John told us was God's Lamb who would take away the sins of the world. And so in Christ, we fulfill all the meaning of those sacrifices in the Old Testament. So it has not been set aside. It has not been nullified. It has only been intensified and brought into its full meaning. Now that's an idea that you're going to have to work with. And the best way to do that is to compare the New Testament with the Old Testament and kind of work back and forth to bring it together. It goes on to say this. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teach of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I want to give one illustration in how Jesus brought out that he fulfilled the law and how he as the king described to us a whole new way of living. In verse 21 he says this, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder. I think all of us would agree that the commandment, Thou shalt not murder, is a good command. And anyone who murders will be subject to the judgment. If you were an Old Testament Israelite and you murdered somebody in cold blood, you would run to the city of refuge. And then the elders of that city, together with a person like a member of the family of the individual that you had murdered, they would come and accuse you. And it would be brought before all the Israelite elders in that city. And they would try you. And if you were guilty of murder in the first degree, premeditated, planned murder, then you would be executed. You would be stoned. And so if you committed murder, you were liable to the judgment. In our society, it's a little bit hard to understand that because you can murder somebody in our day and you're not liable to the court, although you are. So we can still understand it. You understand what I mean? In other words, in our day, we start to think about all the ways you can get off. If you get a good lawyer, if you have enough money, you might just go down to the tank for five or six years, but then you can get out. In old Israel, the idea was if you murdered and it was proven that you had murdered, very careful judicial process, there had to be two or three people that, were, that could witness that you had murdered, that it was a premeditated act. Ultimately, God was overseeing it as the theocratic king. But everyone would agree that Jesus was talking about murder, you're liable to judgment. But he goes on and says this. Now, we all buy that. How many of you think that murderers should go to the court, should be tried, and if they're guilty, they should be justly punished? Okay, murderers should get it. Amen? Okay, let's read the next part. You're not going to say as strong an amen to the next part. But I tell you, that's what God said in the Old Testament. The Pharisees pride themselves. We don't murder. We've never taken somebody by the neck and crunched them. We've never, never executed somebody in murder. So we're not murderers. Look what Jesus said. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, moron, 
Anybody say that this week? You stupid idiot! That sound like anybody this week? Raise your hand. Confession time. Parents, you idiots! How could you ever have done that? Any parents done that this week? Any kids done that? Interaction with kids. How many of you have ever had a lesson with your kids teaching them how to say, you moron. You're a real jerk. You can fill in, you know, what the latest slang word is for raka in Hebrew. Okay? Now notice what Jesus says. Anyone who says raka is answered to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the hellfire. Now, how many of you think God outlawed murder in the Old Testament? What is Jesus outlawing? He's outlawing vindictive. I'm going to get you. You hurt me, and I'm angry about it, and I'm going to take justice into my own hands, and I'm going to plaster you. And you know what Jesus said? He outlawed that kind of violent rage. The scripture says if you're angry, don't sin. So we're not talking about just the impulse that comes up inside of us that we all have. In fact, you can have righteous impulses. If you see a little child being beaten up by a big bully and you've got the strength to be able to go and handle that big bully and to go over and get a hold of them and stop that fight and you just sit there and go, I'm not supposed to do anything. The Lord Jesus took the money changers and threw the tables over and drove the animals out. He was angry. So Jesus is not talking about that kind of righteous indignation over just causes like that. But what he is talking about, the fact is that deep inside of our tank, there is a violent hatred that when we're jostled a little bit, it spills out all over the place. We can be filled with anger. You know what Jesus said? He says, that is the beginning of murder. And therefore, in the kingdom of God, just as murder is outlawed, bitter, vitriolic, ejaculations of hatred are guilty of the eternal flames of hell. There are some husbands, when you've looked at your wife, and she's done something, you say, you idiot. And you've been slowly murdering her personality for year after year after year. There's some moms and dads who from the time they're kids were just little tiny kids. Dad's under a lot of pressure at work. He feels like his boss is coming down on him. And he comes home and he's just got to unwind a little bit because he's just so uptight. So he drinks a six-pack. And when he gets through the happy stages, his little five-year-old comes in. And the little five-year-old just wants to jump up into daddy's lap. But as the angry phases of the spirits of alcohol begin to take, take its toll, that daddy grabs a little five-year-old kid and right out of the blue just shakes him and throws him down and yells at him in angry fury. There's some little kids right in our, right in our area that live in a home where they never know what's going to happen, even believing homes. 
It's not the righteous, controlled discipline of a spanking where tears are coming down daddy's face because he hates to spank his little one. It hurts him much more than it hurts that little one, but he wants the little one to learn that the consequences of disobedience produce pain, and he gives him a little bit of pain so they won't get run over by an 18-wheeler and experience a whole lot of pain. It's not what we're talking about. Jesus is talking about that anger where a parent can take a kid and just tear the child apart and can hurt that child. Or a wife that can go up against her husband because she gets so furious at the husband, he hurts her so badly, and she just beats on him. And Jesus is saying that's where murder starts. There's been a murder in Dallas this week, I guarantee you, because it started with deep-seated bitterness. Started out, you moron, you jerk, and on and on, blankety, blank, 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 pow. You know what Jesus the king said? It's all outlawed. It's all outlawed. He says we're worthy of eternal judgment if we do that. Now that makes it, how many of you think that anger should be outlawed? And how many of you think you should be brought to the court for your anger? How many are going to go to court with me? You see how deep Jesus gets? You see how different from religion Jesus is? Jesus talks to your soul and to my soul. He talks about what's really inside. You know, some of you are raised with angry preachers. Some of you precious girls in this audience, your preacher was wrestling with sexual impulses that he wasn't controlling. And Sunday after Sunday, he came all down onto you by the way you dressed, by what you looked like, just lambasted you. What he was really doing was wrestling with a whole false concept of what it meant to relate to the opposite sex. And you interpreted it as the word of God to you. And in reality, it was just anger, fear. That's a subtle, twisted game that Satan is playing. Now, what do we need to do with our anger? We're going to have anger. It's in our soul. Some of it's righteous, but the kind of, it uses a present tense for anger here. That abiding in anger, that living in bitterness that keeps rolling out the vitriolic statements. What do we need to do about that? Look what it says. Therefore, if you have an offering, you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now, Jesus has a strange turnabout. I would, if I were teaching, I would say this. Don't be angry. Anger is an internal thing. You need to learn how to deal with it. You need to learn how to express it in constructive ways and not calling someone a moron or a fool. You need to learn how to speak the truth in love, to have direct kind of communications. That's what I would say. And then I would go on to say, now, if you have been angry at somebody, then you need to go to them and apologize that you've been angry at them. But you know that's what Jesus says. Jesus said, if you're bringing your gift to the altar and you remember not that you were angry at someone, but that someone was angry with you. You offended somebody. You got on the wrong side of somebody. You got uptight with somebody. There was a misunderstanding and somebody else was offended. 
It doesn't say if I was angry. I can understand that. But Jesus jumps to the opposite side of the coin and says, if you're estranged from somebody, if there's someone that's offended over you, then leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled with your brother. And don't come to church until you've done it. In fact, you ought to just get up. Jesus says, if you're sitting in church and you're praying and you're worshiping the Lord and you're singing the song and everything's dead inside because you know there's really an estrangement, get up and go to your brother and make it right. You know, I think there would be a revival if believers did that. You see, there is offense. You can't live closely with people without offending one another. But you know what's such a tragedy in our culture and what we need to recapture? We let relationships go so easily. We let marriages go so easily. We let kids go so easily. We let business relationships go so easily. You know what Jesus is calling us to do? He's calling us to be people who care about relationships with people. You know what I found again and again? I found out that until you get head-to-head -head and face-to-face -face and just talking one-on-one -on -one with somebody, you don't clear up misunderstandings. I find that people can be offended, and it's a total miscommunication. And it's so easy to get angry about that. How could they have misunderstood? How could they have been offended? I didn't do anything. Jesus is saying that we need to care so much about relationship that it doesn't make any difference whether or not we're right, whether or not we're justified. We're to try to get back into closeness with somebody. We're to care about them. And we're to take the initiative to do it. I want to encourage you, this afternoon I think that some of you need to get in your car and you need to go to an offended brother or sister and you need to go and say, you know, I feel distance, I feel that I have offended you, and I'm sorry. Some of you know that you've done that. You used to be really close friends. Some of you used to be at over one another's houses quite frequently, and you're not anymore. Why not? Go and make those relationships. Go and make them right. You know why? The king has come. That's what Jesus is saying. The king has come. And therefore, we're all brothers and sisters. We're going to be together for all of eternity. So I've got to start learning how to live with you in the here below because I'm going to be stuck with you forever. And that's really what Jesus is saying. We are called to be a new people. Across this town, across this area, relationships are built on power struggles and personality struggles and misunderstandings and trying to get your way and being sure that you get justice. You know what Jesus is saying? We're kings. You're already safe. You're already secure. So you're free to love. You're free to give. You're free to become a peacemaker. Blessed are those who make peace, who bring about reconciliation. If you have a brother or sister that you can't talk to, or you can't give a hug, then there's something wrong. There's anger. We call it all kinds of things. Well, I'm just kind of frustrated. I'm kind of hurt. If you're withdrawing, you're angry. 
And Jesus calls us not to withdraw, but to go and to learn how to hug again. You know, God does an amazing thing. When there's death, time and time again, when there's death, as a pastor teacher, I see families reconcile. I'll see a son in the graveside just weeping gray, gray tears. And he says, oh, Dad, I'm sorry. Forgive me. The Lord hears that prayer. But whether or not Dad does or not, I don't know. You need to learn to be able to look at your dad and your mom right in the eye and say, I love you. Sure, we have some different viewpoints. I've matured differently in some ways. But, oh, you're my brother, you're my sister, you're my mom, my dad. We need to learn that kind of maturity. We need to learn that in in decision-making. I disagree with you. I think you're out to lunch on that. I think that idea might even be very destructive to the church, and we'll debate about it. We'll argue about it. We'll have difference of opinion, but we've got to do it according to Jesus in the context of reconciliation. Hugging, being brothers and sisters, The Sermon on the Mount says, By this shall all men know you're my disciples because you love one another. I want you to be in prayer about offense and the need for reconciliation. 